This is the Soil Sense podcast where we believe that building healthier soils is not just a prescription, but rather a pursuit. It's a journey that requires collaboration, curiosity, and communication among farmers, researchers, agronomists, consultants, and extension. You're going to hear their stories and discover how and why they're working together to make sense out of what's happening in the soil. Hey there, thanks for joining us for another episode of Soil Sense. I'm your host, Tim Hammerich. Today's episode came about when I recently saw an article about the alarming spread of the soybean cyst nematode. And when I mentioned this to Dr. Abby Wick, who produces all the content for the show, she said, as she usually does, she knew exactly the right person to bring onto the show to talk about this problem. We have on the show Dr. Sam Markell, extension plant pathologist at North Dakota State University, who focuses on broadleaf crops. Sam has worked in this position for about 14 years now after finishing his PhD, which focused more on cereal crops. Now, this is actually a great follow-up episode to the one we did on soil-borne diseases with Dr. Audrey Kalisle a few episodes back. But whereas Audrey focused more on pulse crops, today's episode is going to focus on soybeans, specifically the soybean cyst nematode and sudden death syndrome. In the 14 years that Sam's been in his current position, He's not only seen a rapid expansion in acreage of soybeans in North Dakota, but also in diseases and nematodes. Well, at least this one nematode in particular. Well, initially, 14 years ago, we would have a little bit of white mold. We'd have some root rots. You know, Phytophthora was showing up. Wow, but we didn't have much else. I mean, we just, it was kind of like a honeymoon phase for soybeans. And it is a totally different world up here. So the thing that I think I'm most concerned about year in and year out is soybean cyst nematodes. So this was first found in North Dakota in 2003 in a spot in Richland County. So Richland County is the southeasternmost county of the state. And now we've got it in two dozen counties. It's spread like wildfire. It's just a slow moving wildfire. That's what I'm most concerned about. Last year, we had something brand new show up called Frog Eye Leaf Spot. It's seems to be almost endemic in places in the Mid-South and into Iowa, Minnesota, they can get some losses as well. We'd never seen it before until last year. Uh, sudden death syndrome was the same way. So soil-borne pathogen causes the disease, and that showed up for the first time in 2018. So there's been a lot of expansion of soybean diseases. We still see white mold. We still see root rots. They are very important, and, and especially with the root rots, I think they tend to be getting a little worse. But it's the new and emerging things that take a lot of time. It's a, a lot of the growers are asking questions and really good questions. Growers just as, in general are very observant. And when something new pops up, they usually see it. Yeah, so it's, it's been interesting in the last decade in particular. As you may have already caught on to, you're going to hear Sam mention several diseases throughout the course of today's conversation. You're also going to get a fascinating conversation about why knowing your soil can help you manage these pathogens better and a science fiction-like idea of fighting these diseases in the future. But for the most part, we are going to focus on those two main problems, soybean cyst nematode and sudden death syndrome, starting with the nematode. Soybean cyst is tough. That depends a little bit on where you live. And there's a really interesting story with soybean cyst. So maybe I'll back up a step and talk about it. That particular nematode was introduced into the U.S. in the 1950s. So we, we didn't see it before then. And it was introduced in North Carolina. And then it showed up in the boot heel of Missouri. So there's a lot of soybeans in that Mississippi River Valley in that area, Missouri, Arkansas, Mississippi, uh, you know, Tennessee, that, that whole Mississippi Valley is full of soybeans. It's full of other things too, but there's a lot of soybeans down there. 
And so it took hold in the 50s and then it started to expand. And then there's a couple of epicenters that showed up a little later. Northern Iowa was one of them, northern Iowa, north central Minnesota. So this right now, it's causing about a billion to billion and a half dollars in yield loss every year for growers. But in the 1990s, there was an effort to really get genetic resistance put into varieties. They did a fantastic job, except they were using basically the same source of genetic resistance in all the varieties. So right now, even today, about 90 to 95% of all the soybean varieties that are resistant to soybean cyst have the same source of genetic resistance, right? So for many years, it was excellent. So you could do crop rotation, you know, and, and you know they grow pretty good soybeans in Iowa, and they're pretty much growing soybean corn, soybean corn, soybean corn, right? You know, so pretty simple crop rotation, and the use of this genetic resistance was pretty much all you really had to do. That's all changed, unfortunately. <laughs> so you can imagine if you have the same source of genetic resistance on, I don't know, 60, 80 million acres of soybeans for 20 years, that nematode is going to adapt to that, right? You could imagine spraying the same herbicide chemistry on 80 million acres of soybeans a year. And, you know, we could call that Roundup if we want. You know, it just doesn't last forever, right? So the same thing has happened. So to answer your question right now, soybean cyst management became a little bit more complex. So if you're in a place like Iowa, you have to be very careful about what source of resistance you're using because a lot of the 88788, which is the one that's been in the pipeline for you know decades, it doesn't work quite as well as it used to. Another source of resistance is really important, but they're a little bit harder to come by. Crop rotation does help if you can lengthen that crop rotation. And that in Iowa, that just might not be the case. There are some new seed treatments, and this is really a new thing since maybe 2014, 15, 16. And some of the seed treatments, I think, have some promise, but we're still learning where the best fit is and what they can offer us. So, so with soybean cyst, you have to be pretty active in how you manage it. You move to North Dakota now, and it's a little different scenario. So 88788, that source of resistance, it really is holding up pretty good. We're starting to see a little bit of adaptation to it by the nematode, but not nearly as much. We have the luxury of rotating with lots of different crops, right? We are not a corn soybean state. Although I say that and you drive around southeastern North Dakota and it looks a lot like Iowa, but there are a lot of other crops that we can grow that are very helpful for rotation. And then of course we have the seed treatments as well. For most people, it's probably not a big surprise that a pathogen that exists in one part of the U.S. is bound to spread to other states. For pests and pathogens that live in the soil, that means if soil is moving, then they're moving as well. Yeah, I think from a really high level, you know, 30,000 feet looking at the world, pathogens spread. I mean, we we obviously are dealing with the spread of the coronavirus, right? You know, it started in one spot and over time it just spreads. That's happening with all these things. Soybeans aren't from North America. North Dakota has not been producing them for as long as other states. So soybeans and a lot of the pathogens that cause problems on soybeans all came from other places on the globe, you know, notably Asia. And so there's a spread just to kind of a continual spread. Maybe at a not so high level, you have soybeans growing and moving all the time. Maturity groups are getting younger or I guess earlier, so we can grow them all the way into Canada. We grow some pretty decent soybeans in Canada now. And the pathogens seem to tend to follow it. So soybean cyst is a it's a parasitic worm. And for most of its life cycle, you can't see it. It's microscopic, but in one little phase it has this cyst structure that it forms which is really interesting. It's actually a female worm full of eggs, and it's actually the female's body that's swollen up. 
But that female worm, that cyst structure, when she you know, gets old and dies and protects those eggs, is super, super tough. And that moves with soil, it moves with wind, it moves with flood water. And the more that we move machinery, the more that soil blows around and moves, the more you expect those things to spread. So that's soybean cyst. And I would say that sudden death syndrome, that particular pathogen is also a soil-borne pathogen. So almost exactly the same thing applies. It's just not as tough as the nematode. It's, it's a fungus. Now, keeping your soil from blowing away is obviously important for several reasons. But one that is maybe overlooked is that if soil is blowing from field to field, so are pathogens. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. When we don't get a lot of snow cover, when we see, you know, snert storms, when blowing around, it's, it's blowing all kinds of things. And particularly with pathogens, you know, they're microscopic. For the most part, you can assume they're light. You know, if you can see soil particles blowing around, you, you need to assume that you're blowing pathogens around. So absolutely. I know a few years back, the soil extension fertility specialist at NDSU went and out and did a bunch of probing into ditches after we didn't have much snow cover and there was some wind blowing around. He was just soil sampling in the ditches, the soil that had blown from fields. And he was able to pull off a lot of samples that had pretty high egg level counts with soybean cyst. And egg, egg levels are how we measure the amount, kind of like the density of the pathogen. Many of the growers in the Great Plains will, will understand some of the wheat rusts and that these wheat rust pathogens, you know, the ones that cause the stem rust or leaf rust or, or stripe rust, you know, they don't survive through our winter, but yet we get them almost every year. And what's happening is they'll survive the winter in maybe Kansas or Oklahoma or Texas on the winter wheat. You know, those winter wheat crops are maturing, probably not that different than when we're kind of getting into our mid-season or maybe maybe even earlier. But if they have rust, those spores get into the upper air currents and they will blow hundreds of miles. So in North Dakota, we always look to South Dakota to see, you know, when are we going to get stripe rust or when are we going to get leaf rust? And in South Dakota, they're looking to Nebraska. So, I mean, growers are aware of this if they're growing cereals, wheat in particular. You can almost imagine that same scenario playing out in soil. So when you're seeing soil move, it's not going to get up into the upper air currents maybe and move you know, 100 miles necessarily. But if you're seeing something move, you can imagine that you're seeing pathogens move with it. In the case of rust, it's hundreds of miles. And in the case of snert storms, maybe it's just a few miles. But a few miles over and over and over, it adds up pretty quick. This, of course, applies to not only soybean cyst nematode, but to any soil-dwelling pathogen or nematode as well including sudden death syndrome, which is caused by a type of fusarium fungus. Yep, sudden death syndrome is caused by a, a fungus called fusarium virgiliformi. And fusarium is the genus, virgiliformi is the species. And so many of the growers know they hear about fusarium all the time, right? Fusarium root rot maybe in some crops, fusarium head blight or scab in wheat and cereals. So fusarium virgiliformi is an interesting pathogen. So it can cause root rots on a few different legumes, but it does something really unique with soybeans. So the way this pathogen works is Fusarium virgiliforme is in the soil, and very early in the season, it will infect the roots. And it, it might be the first week or the first couple of weeks where you get pretty potentially pretty high infection in the roots. And then this pathogen will sit there and grow in the roots. The pathogen will not ever grow basically beyond the roots. It just doesn't do that. Which is really odd because if you're a grower and you see sudden death, it's the leaves and the, the leaves are turning chlorosis. They've got these necrotic streaks between the veins and the leaves will start to drop, leaving only petioles, you know, and it can cause huge yield loss. But 
the pathogen itself never leaves the roots. But what it does is it creates a plant toxin. And so it produces this toxin and the toxin is sent up into the plant. And it's actually the toxin that this fusarium is producing that will do what it does to the leaves and eventually cause them to drop and it do what it does to the yield, which obviously causes that to drop as well. So fusarium verticillaforme can affect a few other crops, but as far as I know, it only does that sudden death thing. It don't, that toxin, the toxin effect that you see in soybeans only occurs in soybeans. So with both of these major problems, sudden death syndrome and soybean cyst nematode, what options do growers have for managing these issues? I would say that it starts with two things that don't have anything to do necessarily with the field season, right? And it's it's seed selection, it's variety selection, it's figuring out what you're actually going to plant. You know, so obviously there's a lot of factors that you look at when you select whatever variety you're going to look. I mean, obviously you're looking at yield, but you might be looking at, you know, iron chlorosis. You you should also be thinking about disease resistance, right? And the growers know their fields. They, they know what diseases they've got. They see something new and they figure it out, right? So really disease management really, I think, starts with variety selection. The second thing is crop rotation. You know, I understand that, you know, lots of rotation is every other year. And maybe there's not a lot you can do about it in some cases. And I also understand that economics is really driving the bus on this. And, you know, that that is the way it is. And that's not going to change. But in some cases, it might pay, particularly over the long term, to increase a rotation in a crop. And in some states, we have a lot more flexibility. North Dakota is one of them. We, we've got a lot of different field crops that you grow. So if you see soybean cyst nematode or SCN, you see sudden death in your soybeans, lengthening that crop rotation for a year or two more than you might normally do can really help. It can drive down those populations and those numbers and help decrease your risk. Now, with all of this in mind, I assume if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably in some way interested in building healthier soils. One thing Sam says to be aware of is that if you're providing residue for beneficial microbes, in some cases, this can also be a good environment for pathogens as well. Yeah, for sure. The no-till thing, right? And no-till is a good net benefit. I mean, I like no-till. There's no doubt about it. It's proven for lots of reasons to be very helpful. In pathology, it can have the opposite effect, right? And it's not for all diseases, for sure, but there are a few. So imagine you have a field, it's infested with a pathogen, say at the end of the season. Lots of times those pathogens, so take septoria of wheat, for example, that's going to live in the residue of that crop. And so if you have the residue of that crop on that field for a year and you go back into wheat, the pathogen material is already there. Right. So you're more likely to have an epidemic when the weather is favorable for the spore production or dissemination or, or infection on the new crop. Right. So no-till can increase the inoculum load is how I would word that. So you've got all the residue on the field that's blown around. Lots of times that's full of different pathogen material. Knowing which pathogens are going to live in residue can maybe help you out a little bit because then you might be able to target your variety selection to get something that's resistant to one of them if you're going into a field with a lot of residue. So that that maybe would be the biggest red flag. Yeah, you know, the other thing is that in some cases there's disease forecasting models where you might want to factor in a fungicide application economically, you know, think about that in the budget and then follow a forecasting model so you know when you can maximize that application. You know, get that fungicide application on at the right time so you have the highest benefit. But that is one of the things that 
that is a, maybe a negative of no-till. It's just that there is more residue around, and that residue often has pathogens surviving in it. I half-jokingly mentioned to Sam that plant pathology seemed like a mix between a really complex puzzle and a bit like science fiction. It is a constantly moving target, and one of the things that I I personally kind of enjoy, and I don't want to sound like I'm sadistic or anything, but I personally enjoy trying to figure out what's coming next. You know, what what is going to happen next and how will we handle it? Well, how can we respond to something different? We know for sure that we will always have invasive pathogens. We also know that the pathogens we, we do have, they are going to adapt. They are going to change. They're going to evolve. They'll mutate. They'll increase in different ways. And how we handle them really, I mean, we can we can handle them really poorly or we can handle them really well. So I can't help but think about it. I mean, it's almost like a pathology daydream is to think about what's coming next. Well, I couldn't let him leave us on that cliffhanger. I had to know from Sam what he thinks might be coming next. While he wanted to be clear that he didn't have a crystal ball and didn't know, he was willing to speculate. Yeah, let's just make sure that all the growers know this is science fiction, right? Science fiction-like. How about that? Science fiction-like. Okay. So what I see happening in the future is we've got a lot of different pathogens that are moving around, right? They're being managed by a lot of different fungicides. They are. And the fungicides, for the most part, are effective. We know that a lot of these pathogens, not all of them, but a lot of them, they're pretty likely to become insensitive or resistant to the fungicides in the future. That's already happening. So this example of frog eye leaf spot. So we first get frog eye leaf spot in North Dakota this summer. So this 2020 shows up. We take a whole bunch of samples and we sent them down to a colleague of mine in Kentucky who's kind of the, you know, the U.S. authority on frog eye. What 23% of all the frog eye that we found in North Dakota is already resistant to the strobilurin fungicides. So headline quadris, the active ingredient in like Priaxer. We know that's already happened. It blew up from an area where it was already resistant, but those sorts of things are going to be more and more common. Fungicides over time are going to be less and less and less effective. And then what do we do with that? You know, so what, what is the next step? And so in some ways we need to go back to the old playbook to start managing these in a better way that maybe we would have done 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, right? So that's that's one thing I think about. Another thing I think about is invasive either races or pathogens. So there's been uh, UG99, this wheat rust race that we talk about. It's, it's actually more of a population, this UG99. This wheat rust, this wheat stem rust used to be a huge problem in the Northern Great Plains. Southern Plains too, but the Northern Great Plains was really devastated by stem rust decades ago. We have done a fantastic job of managing this with genetic resistance. And there was another program called the Barbary Eradication Program too, which actually took out part of the way the pathogen can change races and evolve. It was a fantastic program a long time ago. But anyways, so we've done a fantastic job managing it with genetic resistance. Well, that's on the edge because in Africa years ago, Uganda, 1999, a new race showed up that basically took out the resistance genes that had really helped make uh, stem rust go away. And so there's pathogen races that are floating around in that area right now where if they get into North America, you go from having almost your entire crop being resistant to almost your entire crop being susceptible to an old pathogen that caused tremendous damage in the past. So it's an example of what could happen. But at any point, the genetic resistance that we use to manage any of these different diseases it could fail because the pathogens could adapt to it and they can adapt pretty quick. 
Now, before we close out today's episode on that ominous note, Sam wanted to provide some comments on the important connection between managing soil and managing pathogens. So sometimes we don't think about pathology and soil being intimately related, but in some cases, soil factors make a huge difference in how likely you are to have a disease epidemic of certain pathogens. And so two classic examples that I would use would be soybean cyst nematode and club root of canola and pH. So soybean cyst nematode, that nematode can go all over the place, lots of different soil types. It can cause problems pretty much anywhere, but you're much more likely to see a real problem, real yield loss if you have high pH. That nematode really likes 8, 2, 7, 8, really likes that higher soil pH. You don't usually see nearly the yield loss if you have a lower soil pH, you know, in the sixes or something like that. It's really a high pH thing. Club root and canola is a huge problem. It's caused by another soil-borne pathogen, totally unrelated to soybean cyst nematode. It's not a nematode at all. And when you see problems, it's your low pH. It's acid soils. Again, it's the same thing. The pathogen can get into any soil. It can cause disease in any soil condition, but you're much more likely to have a lot of damage when you have a low pH. And so sometimes understanding your soils can really help you figure out what pathogen or disease you're more likely to see. Another thing about knowing your soils a little bit that might help you with pathology is the soil texture. You know, so most pathogens, like I said, they can go in any soil, they can cause disease in any soil, but sometimes soil texture can have a disproportionate effect on how some of these diseases show up and how much yield loss they take. And kind of a logical classical example would be root rots. And and there's multiple root rot species, but we'll just talk about root rots in general. So if you have a root rot, you have damaged root tissue. If you're on a clay soil, you might not see it show up so much right away, right? So clay, they tend to hold a little more water. The roots don't struggle maybe as much for water unless it's flooded, of course. But if you have damaged roots and you've got quite a bit of available water, you might not see that plant wilt right away. But that's not necessarily true on sand, right? So sands, they don't hold as much water. So if you have a root rot on sands, it is very likely you're going to see that plant wilt right away as soon as it dries up just because there's lack of water availability. The other thing to consider is the exact opposite. So you have heavy clays, they hold a lot of water. So in a flooding scenario, they're going to stay wet for a while. Some of the root rot pathogens are in a group we call oomycetes, so swimming spores. They need water to move around. So Phytophthora of soybeans is one of these. It's a pretty common one. Pythium, which causes disease on quite a few crops, is another. Aphanomyces, maybe, if you've heard of that, that's another. They're all in this group. And so if you have a flooded field or you have a really wet field, say soybeans, for example, you've got some you know, saturated soils for, I don't know, maybe a week or something. Maybe there's some plants underwater. Don't assume that it's actually drowned out if you're seeing plants start to die a week or two after. It actually might be one of those oomycete pathogens like Phytophthora. So that's one of the things that we, we and I, I'm guilty of this too, I will mistake that for drown out initially until I get in there and look around and realize that it's actually not the water killing them. It's actually the Pythium or the Aphanomyces or the, or the Phytophthora that's doing the, doing the work. And so if you can figure out this actually not water, well, then maybe you can manage it. Maybe you can select a variety with a resistance gene or switch up your seed treatment or something like that. So just being aware of what's going on in your soils can really help you in some cases manage your plant diseases. 
Thank you so much to Dr. Sam Markell for taking time to share with us about some of these pathogens that he's working with. There really was a lot of interesting information in this episode, and I particularly liked his last comment there about how knowing your soils can really be helpful in managing some of these diseases. Well, that's actually it for all of season four. It kind of snuck up on me a little bit, but this is our last episode in this season. Thank you so much to our sponsors who have made season four of Soil Sense possible, the North Dakota Corn Council, the North Dakota Wheat Commission, the North Dakota Soybean Council, the North Harvest Dry Bean Association, the North Dakota Barley Council, and Anheuser-Busch. We're going to take a little bit of time off as we gear up for either season five or maybe another round of those field check episodes like we did last summer. But in the meantime, make sure you go back and download any old episode that you haven't listened to yet and leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with some more great soil content coming your way very soon.